Paul Levy. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi. Uh, very irregular conversations. We always mean to speak more often and then end up talking like once a year or less often. Maybe they're the best ones. Maybe. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. We um, we just re-released your Collusion of Mediocrity one as a Essentials mix. So a lot of people will have heard that for the first time, I think. So that's quite good. Cause that's always been one of my favourites. I have a fondness for it. Well, I guess we're colluding more than ever in society at the moment um, at, at some level. So that's a timely one to re-release, I guess. Isn't it? Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Um, and for me, who sits here in Spain, it's a particularly potent week for that. Although this will be released sometime later. Yeah. So you have to look back and work out what was actually happening in Spain at the beginning of October for my last comment to make any sense. Is that the big question? Where were you when John Tomlinson interviewed you? Yeah, I imagine it is. I imagine that's the big question that most people are grappling with. Yeah. But what did you want to talk about today? Well, I think this is the elephant in the room. Um, and it's the one about smartphones and tablets and digital addiction and digital distraction and how that's playing into rooms in which facilitators and trainers find themselves. You, you mentioned the idea of doing this one. And I was kind of I thought I sort of thought we needed to do this. We needed to have this conversation. Uh, yeah. Partly because we don't actually have anything else really about this on the Trainer Tools uh, site. And I think that's probably a reflection of my bias. The fact that yeah. for me, this the sort of invasion, if that's the word, of technology to me seems to be quite faddish. Yeah. And we're looking for ways to use things like phones and tablets and whatnot for the sake of. Yeah. Rather than the fact that they are necessarily adding value yeah or because they're there anyway and we're kind of thinking well let's do something with them and mm -hmm. to be honest i'm not that convinced because i really do feel learning is a very human experience it's a social experience the point of getting people together in classrooms is to use the social side of it so for me it kind of it's always felt like a bit of a thing that i kind of uh, not quite sure i want to go there yeah and and you know if you go back i don't know how many years for me it feels like at least eight to 10 years. I can remember being one of those people that if we had ground rules in a workshop or a conference uh, or in a training situation, often one of those rules was please keep your mobile phones off. And you know, we're gonna have breaks and you can check in on your text then. But in recent years, probably the last five years, some of my biggest work has been as a facilitator for organizations like the Digital and Social Media Leadership Forum and the Bitcoin and blockchain leadership forum, which is around cryptocurrencies. And before that I was working with the digital workplace group. And in all of those, the first thing that was said in the room was please keep your mobile phones on, right? but use them responsibly. And so we had people in that room, uh, chief technology officer level. We had people that had come along to learn, some of whom probably had tens of thousands of you know what is called followers online. And there were definitely some people in that room that were irritated by people on their mobile phones on their smartphones checking in online but the majority of people it was normal for them and being someone who walks around the room I absolutely saw people for example tweeting out what was going on in the room within ground rules of respecting confidentiality so Chatham House rules meant you could tweet the learning but not mention names specifically and there were absolutely responses happening in real time from all over the world responding back into the room. And some of the Q&A reflected that. Um, and I realized, oh my God, we've not just got 50 people in this room. We've got probably thousands of people potentially in this room. And one part of me finds that 
an excuse, a kind of reason to bring digital into the room that doesn't feel wholly convincing, even as I was doing it. But another part absolutely started to look in the mirror and see a dinosaur looking back and saying, you know, the millennial and the post-millennial generation, this is normal for them. And absolutely some of the questions, the comments, the case study examples, the links that were being shared in the, the wider world were positively influencing the experience. And I realised that this is a different experience. And where I was at was where the writer Sherry Turkle was probably at the time when she wrote a book called Alone Together based on research, which is even as we're more connected, somehow we're also isolating ourselves. But it's also time to pause and reflect and look at what this technology is offering us, both good and bad. And certainly my experiences with the digital leadership group, as they're now called, was this is normal now. This is the new normal. And facilitators ignore it at their peril, whether they agree with it or not. So as an overview, please keep your digital devices on, but use them responsibly seems to be the new ground rule, John. Well, I can kind of I can kind of get that to, to an extent, partly as well, because some people do need to keep an element of keeping keeping in touch with their day job, depending on what their job is. And that's for them to decide whether or not they need to keep in touch with what else is going on. And I don't think, I think that's the distraction. If you're there through habit, just checking the fact that you've noticed you've got a Facebook notification, which is, has no relevance whatsoever to the learning of the day. Or by habit, you're checking your email and then it's itching away in your mind the fact that you've got that email that you know you need to reply to. But actually, it's nothing to do with the learning. The example you gave was a was people tweeting learning and getting responses about learning. So it was kind of amplifying the learning to some extent, amplifying even the social aspect of the learning. So I think that is a good example and it's quite exciting, but you need to have a lot of followers to do that. I tweet something out and nobody says a bloody thing half the time. Uh, Well, and that's part of the new learning about this because as I walked around the room and the facilitators often got that freedom to do so, absolutely there were people just doing their emails. Um, And you could argue that that is a... It could be addiction and it could be disrespect, but it could also be uh, the realisation finally that the old, almost military or church-like model of having people up the front advocating to audiences and people in audiences sitting rather stuck on their chairs listening are using their human rights and switching off what is not interesting or relevant for them and moving somewhere where they can be more productive, i.e. online. And that's called the law of two feet in the world of open space technology for example that people have the right to self-organize and it's not our business to stop them doing it with with rules that's the old age of the classroom and hierarchy so if you're old-fashioned you're going to think i'm an idiot and a lunatic in a way um, who doesn't get it but if you're kind of i suppose where the world is at the moment it's not that you have to agree with me but you do have to recognize that perhaps in a world of self-organisation, we don't need to be sitting passively listening to people at the front unless they're delivering, you know, TED Talk type quality that is compelling for us. So people are using their time more productively. So I was definitely seeing people zoning out of the room and doing what they wanted. And I didn't see it as my role. It certainly wasn't part of my brief to be tapping them on the shoulder saying, please turn your phone off. But there were uh, uh, over the years, there's been a growing number of people. Now, whether you agree with this or not, who are kind of multitasking, um, they're doing a bit of emailing, they're doing a bit of tweeting and they're listening at the front and they're kind of, you know, creaming off what's relevant to them. And then there's another bunch of people who seem to have a new skill set where they are genuinely note taking and they're note taking and sharing that with communities wider. You know, we can't all fly into London anymore. There's environmental issues. So they're tweeting that to their 
their community, their team, and the team are getting the benefit of what that person is the representative of that team in a room listening. Um, and there's a conversation going on, a social conversation online around that meeting. Uh, reporting is going out of that room and, and influence is coming back into that room through the questions that that person asks on behalf of that team. Now, that was definitely a, m- a minority, even last year at meetings I was facilitating. But it does represent an interesting form of interaction or dialogue, a new skill set that it does rather seem inevitable, uh, you know, unless we become even more hierarchical again and ban these things. We're going to have not only people in the room collecting information and sharing it, but we're going to have robots in the room. We've already got things like the Amazon Echo at home. And whether people know this or not, it's collecting anonymous information about you and feeding that into systems to make them more intelligent and responsive back to you for good or bad. But that that is the technological singularity, it's called, where we're going to be more plugged in than plugged out. And the idea of being in a room that's purely physical, I still have an instinct for that very strongly. I still want that where everything is switched off. But it's certainly not where our client base is going as facilitators. Well, let's I think there's three things here that I want to go back on. And one is your point. The last point you just made there was your preference. And my preference is the same. Perhaps we're showing our age here, Paul. But my preference is similar. So maybe we need to kind of like unpack that and work out. Are we just being biased and middle-aged fiddly-duddies and millennials are just onto something that we have, we kind of intellectually understand, but we haven't really embraced? Or are we actually on, or are we right and they're just being distracted by technology? So I think there's a, there's a yeah. bit of a discussion about that. Yeah. And then, then there's the kind of the two different types of uh, digital invasion that you've mentioned there. One was the, the law of two feet. In other words, the person's bored. And, or at least they've consciously decided to do something more productive or subconsciously decided to do something more productive or, or, or they're responding to their addiction, but essentially they're doing something that's not related to the content. And then there's the other example that you use there, which is where people are actually tweeting the content or amplifying the content somehow so that digital activity is related to the learning. So there's three bits there. Yeah, it's interesting that over 30, 40 years ago, I can't, don't know the exact date, but I think it was Timothy Leary that, that said, you know, in the future, physical meetings are increasingly going to become sacred. And in researching that I did for, for my own book, which I'm not going to mention, so, you know, I'm not plugging it, but it was a book around digital and digital addiction, was that are we being old fashioned, John, or is there something archetypal, fundamental about human communication that's not wired, that's not digital? Could it actually be, um, and I call this in my work placement, that sometimes what we need to do, because it is such a fundamental thing, is place the devices to off. So we are 100 percent fully in in space, in time, physicality, um, in, in face to face communication, not mediated by digital, which even now all of those screens their fundamental design is binary set to combinations of ones and zeros, either on or off. And, you know, rather alarmingly, here's a quote from I think it was George Bush during one of the Q80 wars. Either you're with us or you're against us. That's a false proposition that life is always either or. Life is also quality. And the digital doesn't capture that very easily, at least at the moment. You know, people claim artificial intelligence is going to come closer to it. But human beings in a quality relationship in the room may be generating creative ideas, creative thoughts that when they're not mediated by digital lead to certain conclusions and results that when they are mediated by digital become mediocre, become, you know, binary um, and become kind of false in some ways, too. And, you know, as you look in the world at 
the moment various forms of conflict. They are very rarely solved by one or zero, by the bomb going off or not going off. They are usually uh, resolved by dialogue, by the qualitative conversation that people have. So the new skill set may well be to place the digital. Sometimes you can say this, as we're doing at the moment, this one can be recorded on Skype. But in other ways, and that's brilliant because you're in another country and I'm in another country. But sometimes you and I might want to have a conversation as we become closer friends, colleagues to say we need to meet physically and talk because a certain quality of output of conversation can only happen in that qualitative space. So the new skill set, and I think the millennials have got this or they're going to develop it, is when to unplug and when to plug in and to know the difference. I, I kind of I kind of think I agree with all of that. There is definitely time to plug in. And I think there's certain aspects of knowledge transfer training that very easily lend themselves well to some kind of distant remote delivery of some sort or another, synchronous or asynchronous, whatever it is. I don't see the sacred, as you called it, the sacred getting together in the, in, in the same place. I don't think that should be wasted on some kind of lecture knowledge transfer thing. Yeah. So I, th- I think where we get to, say, as facilitators or trainers, is still it's this ability to not be slaves to the digital, for digital not to be an, an inevitable thing, but actually to sometimes look into a room responsively or when we create an agenda and to say that hour is going to be very specifically in small groups and we're going to ask people to turn their phones off and simply look each other in the eyes and have a visceral, physical conversation. Then what we might do is we might actually then open this out to the web you know, we might tap into communities around the world and say, look, this is the output from this conversation. What are your thoughts on it? And we might go into that crowdsourced conversation. In other times, we may very specifically say to people, we think as facilitators, this doesn't work well if you're multitasking because it requires focus. So please turn your phones off because we want you to focus on what's here in the room. And that's going to be you know, modulating what we do, as we've probably always done in the past with phones anyway, when they were just mobile phones. And so this idea of please turn your phones on the really good guide for a facilitator is always what's the purpose of that? If it's purposeless, it's probably not useful for the room. But if we'd like you to turn them on because we want you to share with your communities or we actually think, you know, um, there are some interesting links you guys might all want to feed into the shared document up the front. Or we're going to go in a really high quality telepresence based conversation with John Tomlinson. We're going to get him in the room for five minutes. We've just Skyped him and checked he's available to come and tell a case study. So we've got more emergent content. Digital helps span the geographical boundaries, the distances. It creates dynamic content into a room. Other times it's an interference, it's a distraction, like anything, any technology can be. And our skill set as a facilitator is to read that well and banish it from the room. We're not being old fashioned or dinosaurs, we're being skilled facilitators, as hopefully we always were. I think what you're saying there is that there's a time and a place for it. So you you are kind of switching it on and off, depending on when, when it can be useful. Yes. And that I'm on board with, absolutely. I've got no problem with that. And I think that's... I think that's the, I think you described it's that skillful facilitation, it's that intelligent approach to using the tools that are available. Yeah. And I'm all for that because, you know, again, there are times we're turning it off and we're saying, no, actually, this bit's about something else, so that would be a distraction, please turn them off. And there are times that we're turning them on and saying, hey, here's a tool that we can use to get more out of this, whether that's something like Twitter or whatever. Yeah. So, again, I'm okay with that. The bit, the bit that I'm not okay with is using it for the sake of, and the bit I'm not okay with is the distraction. Because, I, I mean, you talked about this law of two feet thing. Um, and again, maybe this is my bias, but I, I don't know how many people purposefully think my time could be more productively used now if I go in and do a bit of emailing or whatever. 
or check my Facebook or whatever it might be, or whether or not they're just naturally reaching for their phone because they're always kind of plugged in. It's that more addictive behavior. And it's really worrying, John, because a lot of the kind of evidence and a lot of it is subjective and anecdotal because there hasn't been a huge amount of research academically into this at all compared to, say, if this was a a medicine or a food, um, which is worrying in its own right, is that the whole thing is designed to gadgetize our behavior. And there was a very famous book quite a few years ago by a writer called Jaron Lanier called You Are Not a Gadget. And it was reminding us that when your phone buzzes in your hand and all your notifications are constantly alerting you and you find your hand reaches for that device, you can have the illusion that you've made the decision to read that thing. But actually observing from outside, a lot of that behavior is addictive and compulsive. And the way the corporations are set up, this is not a conspiracy theory, it's a business model, is they require you to be connected, to to look at adverts. And even that's a distraction that might affect your concentration in a room. You are the gadget, actually. When you pick up the phone to answer, the system sees you as a gadget that it controls. It switches you on to answering the phone. And the more you do, the better. So there is certainly a lot of evidence that we have the illusion of control, the illusion of willfulness. But actually, the will power is in the is in the web itself. And that bothers me. It bothers me that if I buy and what was the latest one, it was an Internet connected teddy bear. Uh, you know, and kids are getting messages. It sounds really fun from their friends who have got similar teddy bears. But that is also collecting anonymous data about what's being said to target you with product. And that bit of it is requiring you to be regularly connected. So it's going to unless and it makes it hard because it's harder to switch off settings than to switch them on. I'm currently on a smartphone where I have no notifications. I have no alerts because I want it to be my will force that goes in. And some people might think I'm being you know, naive. But when I'm in a room physically with people, I want to be totally there for those people. And that requires me not to be being regularly alerted and subject to behavioral models of which I'm not aware. So I tend to agree with you, John, that the way that this is all developing at the moment is the plugging in of the human will and then the harnessing of the human will by systems and corporations that then feed back the illusion that your action is somehow generated by you. And it's not. So I'm being a bit idealistic that these are we are the masters and these are the tools. Um, But the reality is, as time goes on, we're increasingly turning into the gadget and not the user of the gadget. Well, exactly. And I thought you're when when you were talking about your interpretation of the behavior was actually somebody voting with two feet in order to plug into something more productive and a very rational argument. Yeah. That rational human behavior, which we know is not as common as people might like to think. Mm. That, I think that is slightly rose-tinted. I think that is a bit um, idealistic. I think most people are responding, as you said, they're the gadget. It's a really nice way of putting it. It's the phone that's turning the person on because the business model of people like Facebook and Twitter and that is time spent on site equals more money. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Even if you never click on an advert or never buy anything, in general, the rule is more time people spend on site, more cash. That's it. More, more revenue is generated. And therefore, the whole thing is doing that. The whole thing is trying to turn you on and get you to the site, get you to wish happy birthday, get you to retweet or whatever it is. The whole thing is designed to get you to on site, stay on site, get engaged. It is, John, but I'm having to be humble here, uh, here at 52 years old, which is there is a generation that's coming through. And also people my age and older who are displaying this behavior, who are absolutely displaying a behavior that suggests they're native to this that they're wise to that and that they have developed patterns of behavior where they are not behaving in very gadgetized ways. And if they are occasionally diving in, it's a choice. And they are absolutely um, happy, 
fulfilled, productive people in their careers using this technology in ways that, you know, are, I would describe as very skillful. Now, they may be a minority, but and we may be on a threshold here or we may never cross that paradigm shift where we're all like this. But absolutely, that is a new behavior set in the room. And I don't believe it's my role as a facilitator to ban that in a room if I'm being invited increasingly as people listening in may be to client bases where this behavior is normal so what I then have to do is acknowledge what that is and adjust my behavior I don't have to accept it but I do have to accept that for some organizational cultures mobile phones are on by default clearly there's a minority of people that are misusing them and don't even know they're misusing them and there, there is also a minority of people that are exploring experimenting in new skill sets that actually seem to be adding value to those processes too so this is messy. This is not clear. We are in transition at the moment and we can all have our own ideologies. And some people, again, listening in might want to turn down clients that require this as normal behavior. There's a bit of me. Maybe it's midlife crisis that wants to dive into it just to see what it's all about. Well, maybe, maybe. I, you're not still in a midlife crisis, are you, Paul? We talked about that in the first conversation. Well, it's just the realisation that I've switched all my, my notifications off, for example, because I don't think I know how to to deal with a phone that's notifying me all the time. Other people have got those skills. I'm not sure anybody, I'm not so sure, well, maybe they have, but they're chuffing well not in my house, I'll tell you that. Yeah, but, but the technological singularity, which is apparently predicted for 1943, you know, it's coming with, um, at the moment, they're failed attempts, things like Google Glass. It's coming with virtual reality. It's coming with augmented reality. It's coming with artificial intelligence. It's coming with big data. It's redefining workplaces, um, particularly at the kind of, I suppose, the digital end of, of products and services at the moment. And this is coming whether we like it or not. And one thing I don't want to turn into is an irrelevant dinosaur um, and retire out of it. So there's a bit of me that actually the midlife crisis, I still feel I've got enough energy to find out what this is all about and still be offering useful skills. And maybe part of what we do is is still uphold the value in case it gets lost of visceral, physical face to face meetings as a big part of that world. Yeah, maybe you're right. I do think you're dragging your midlife crisis out because it's been good on a while now. Yeah, that's true. Well, it began, I think it began about 10. <laughs> well, I have to say, I do want one of these internet connected teddies. I'm quite looking, I'm definitely going to Google that when we've finished. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly playing devil's advocate here because I, I do think that obviously there are great ways to use technology in learning, and we will talk about that in a second. But this idea that people are developing this skill set where they control the phone rather than the other way around, I suspect even if that's true of a minority, that's an arms race. And the phones and the the sites like Instagram and Snapchat and all the rest of it are on the case. Yeah. And they're trying to wrestle back control. Yeah. So perhaps there is something in there that we need to kind of be teaching people around how to use these phones rather than have them use you. Yeah. And maybe there's... You know, a little bit like when you said when we talked about the collusion of mediocrity, sometimes it's just calling these things out. Yeah. So maybe there's something around saying, you know, I know you need your phones on. You decide whether or not you need them on or not. You decide how you use them during the next whatever number of hours or days for this workshop. And we just call it out and we just say it yeah. there. But, you know, if you feel you need to use them, use them. But bear in mind, Twitter and Facebook and whatnot are trying to get you on there because that's their earning model. Yeah. Maybe I'm going a bit far saying that. 
Now I say that out loud, that sounds ridiculous. But, but just imagine or be open to the idea that organisations that have very good induction and very good cultures that have set what I call a digital ethos firmly as part of their work, you will find yourself in a room where it's normal behaviour for nearly everybody. And it can also be designed into the work-based technologies too, so that the only you, you can only access certain um, applications, some of which may have been customised while you're at work. So you've got your own device, but you've also got your work device uh, and so on. Um, but, but what happens is that person comes into a room and no, they're not checking their emails because they are disciplined. And despite all of that pull, they want to be promoted and they want to be part of the organisation's culture and they're bought into its values. The digital ethos is strong. And just as, you know, craftspeople will only use a certain tool for a certain process and put those tools carefully away and not take them home necessarily, there could be you know a strengthening of willpower in some people through organizational training induction belief in the values of the organization to use this technology excuse the buzzword mindfully to be very strongly part a part of the commitment to the culture so you would find a really disciplined bunch of people in that room who do have their devices on but at no point are they checking their emails because they are fully committing to the physical room that they're in and only using that technology to service and serve the process or enhance it. Now, that might sound ideal, but I genuinely believe there's that possibility. One thing we'd have to do in terms of induction is strengthen people's ability to make willful choices about when they're digital and when they're physical. So it's not an accident. It's not lazy. It's not addictive, but it's actually a core competence in the organisation. I like that a lot. I think that's a really good point. And it is about training people to do that. It is idealistic, but I think it's only idealistic because we're not there now. Yeah. It doesn't sound unrealistic no. at the same time. It sounds like a, a very achievable ideal, actually. Well, not 100%, probably, but it sounds achievable to me. Yeah. So let's let's just end this, because you've mentioned a few ideas already, but let's just try and sort of capture what ideas have we got about really interesting ways that we can use smartphone, tablet, etc., that kind of technology in the learning space what how could we use them you, you've given an example there with twitter which was good yeah so so you were mentioning about um twitter when we were chatting earlier there is a thing about twitter about a critical mass of followership so if i turn my phone on and go to a conference and put my twitter feed on and use the hashtag of the conference i can develop an interest in my experience of that conference i can feed into that world questions links and resources and things can be fed back in that absolutely enrich that community that's then a decision to say that the people in the room are not the only people attending the event and virtual attendance and virtual involvement can then be very practical Another extreme, and I worked with a very large company based in London in financial services, um, what they gave everybody was an app to download. And during their event, uh, there were opportunities to genuinely vote. So when people at the front were suggesting various changes in the organisation, what do you think? Anonymous voting gave immediately um, clear responses and people could type comments that were mentioned right up at the front. So that kind of typing, again, if it's skillful, if it's not just a distraction, allows a real time influence in the room. Those results can then be shared um, externally. You've kind of got live research going on in the room. Obviously, some people, a bit like on this Skype call, there is the opportunity to go live to guest speakers, to bring in recorded information uh, in the form of YouTube videos and learning and online learning. And I, I you know, encourage people to go and have a look at some of the learning platforms. Google offers a free one. Again, you have to be careful what data they're collecting about you, I guess. Um, but, you know, there is the opportunity to start 
to use digital um, where people can start to view content on their devices. And, you know, in clunky big rooms, sometimes being able to look on on a, a screen can be helpful. I don't believe it's possible to or easy for a lot of people to do uh, things at the same time. So it's better to place it more sequentially where, where we are at the moment. So there are various tools. There are various apps that can be developed that can enhance a meeting. Um, you can certainly start sharing documents. And I've certainly been at open space conferences where people have been writing stuff up, taking notes, using their tablets as recording devices. You can record sound. You can record video. Um, and I think some people have held back from that and some people have done some experiments in it. A lot of it's freeware. So you can try this stuff out before you buy um, and my view is use it mindfully, just like any other skill, just like the advent of the flip chart or the whiteboard or the overhead projector and then the PowerPoint projector. This stuff can, uh, you know, like with PowerPoint, you know, it can simply be a crutch for the speaker just to remember what they have to say. Or it can be a really powerful transitioning animated story up the front that people really look at. So use the digital as we always have in terms of technology in ways that complement and enhance the physical activities going on in the room. Yeah, I think it's very much about that complement and enhance, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, amplify. And But I did like the idea when you were saying about tweeting key bits of learning and that's then generating responses. Yeah. Those kind of ideas, one, you've got to, the idea of, of, of putting together a tweet itself means that you've got to sort of consolidate that thing, that nugget of wisdom that you want to share. Yeah. You've got to consolidate it into 140 characters. So that's kind of in itself a, a useful exercise. Yeah. And you've got to choose, you, that's the one that I'm going to tweet. So again, there's some thought in there. And there could be meetings happening in Catalonia at the moment in rooms where, you know, there's a hashtag going on and people are retweeting, you know, comments from influencers that are making their way right to the heart of Spanish government. You know, and that's scary and that's interesting. The idea that, you know, you have an immediacy of communication that was just never possible before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you can you can do things like you can explore, I guess, as well. You can say, right, OK, I want people to spend five minutes kind of, uh, I don't know, Googling around or searching hashtags on Twitter, come up with the best definition of leadership, yeah. or come up with your favourite quote on blah or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. But they're all kind of mechanisms to get people to think. Yes. Each of these, that's why they work, because you're getting people to think, to be critical, to, you know, prioritise one thing over another, whatever it is, that they're all thinking processes and to some extent social as well. Yeah. So in a sense, it's the same stuff. It's just using different tools. There's also one other thing that I absolutely saw over a two-day event where people were tweeting so positively out of the event with notes saying, this is brilliant. Get down here if you can. And, you know, people showed up on day two that never would normally have come. Well, that's a good one as well. We should yeah. do that. Yeah. I should I should tweet now. I should have tweeted at the beginning of this, shouldn't I? I'm yeah. recording this with Paul. And see if anybody actually bloody read the thing. Well, and you'll get the metrics from that. And we've certainly been involved in online conferences where people are tweeting really good talk by so-and-so. And you watch people arriving within minutes. Yeah, well, if you can get that kind of immediacy, and it's down to what you said about having that critical mass, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I once heard it said you need at least 10,000 followers and here's all the ways you can buy them and grow them. And there's all sorts of gamifying going on about Twitter followership. But, you know, actually it can be you might only have 10 followers. But if those 10 followers are massive influences in their own right, then they will do that retweeting for you that will get people reading your stuff. Um, it's about like it's always been in life, really, like the grapevine and rumours work. If something's worth repeating, people will repeat it. Or if someone's worth repeating because a lot of people follow them, that person has a kind of brand and what they say also gets kind of shared as well. That, that game's never really changed. It's just been digitised. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I've got about 800 followers at the moment, and um, there's a few of them that are really good and really kind of tweet some great stuff, and you know, they do engage. But, I mean, a lot of them are fairly silent. Or, you know, there's, I, I'm not convinced of tools like Twitter as an engagement tool. There are a few people that do it really well, and I'm lucky enough to be connected to a few of those, and that's brilliant. But the majority... Didn't it influence the result of the American election for good or evil? I don't know. Apparently so. I suppose so. I suppose, but I think that's an exception, isn't it? Well, I think there's a lot of Twitter influencing going on. I mean, businesses are, are spending a lot of money on that. Yeah, sure. But if you, for most of us, most of us don't have 10,000 followers and we're not going to get into the business of buying them. I don't know how valuable it even is to buy followers because I don't really know how interested they are. If anyone who follows more than a few hundred people isn't really paying attention. No, to but feed. it's also, the, I mean, I don't want to get into the techniques of it, but it's the hashtag. So if you are at an event and you tweet out a really important thing that John Tomlinson said about agile coaching, hashtag agile coaching, there are a bunch of people down around the world who are checking every day because they're interested in agile coaching. And if they happen to see what you've tweeted, what you've said, and it's really interesting and they retweet it before you know it, a bunch of people are coming back, whether you've got many followers or not, to find out who you are and what you do. Now, that could get you more clients, but interesting what it could simply do is get you some interesting conversations and develop that conversation further so uh, what i would encourage you to do and i'm no seller of this stuff is have an have an experiment in your mind around some of the hashtags so these are keywords or phrases very very short that represent your very specific interests and if you've got things to say you may find that you get into some really useful and interesting conversations around the world via twitter okay i've been doing it wrong then that's that's the issue here. Well, the followership's part of the business model, whereas the hashtags are, a, are really the conversation we're all having with each other. They're the themed words that we're interested in. Well, listen, Paul, thanks very much for this. I think it's been really interesting and useful. You've challenged my ideas around using things like smartphones and their invasion into the learning space. So you give me quite a few ideas as well about how we could actually use technology, the technology that's inevitably there, how to actually use that to actually amplify and uh, enhance the experience. So thanks very much for that. I think that's really great. Thank you. Pleasure. And see you on Snapchat. I'm not doing Snapchat. (laughs)